would say today is that when any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Read along with me in Numbers 27. It says, Then the daughters of Zelophehad, although ironically his name should be Zelophehadent, um, because he doesn't have any sons. Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. And those, um, these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tertza. And they stood before Moses, before Eliezer the priest, and before the leaders of the congregation, of all the congregation, by the doorway of the tabernacle of meetings, saying, Our fathers died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those gathered against, together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. So why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses. The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers, and, and cause the inheritance of their fathers to pass to them. Now you shall speak to the children of Israel, and saying, if a man dies and has no son, well, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his brothers. If he has no brothers, well, then you should cause his inheritance to pass to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to the relative closest to him and his family. And if he has no parents, he doesn't exist. Think about that. He doesn't have any, if you don't have parents, you don't exist. I'm just seeing if you were reading along. Just a second. And he shall possess it. It shall be to the children of Israel, a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, the Lord said to Moses, go up into this mount, Abirim, Abarim, and see the land in which I have given also the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, according to the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hollow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel might be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar, the priest, and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Chapter 27 starts to lead us into a direction that really, in essence, sw um, sh oh, 
Let's try that again. I was going to say swifts, see, shifts and swerves, and that became all kinds of words. Uh, from our previous chapters. Now, the book of Numbers is named so because of two specific sensi, because it's census plural, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 26. In chapter 1, it is before their refusal to enter the land God had promised by faith, refused by disobedience because of disbelief. And then God, and they said, oh, God doesn't care about our children. He doesn't care. He wants us all to die. And God says, I'll show you how much I love your children. They'll go into the promised land. You won't. So you're going to wander until you die. So chapter 26 then takes us to the second census. The one now that shows us what's happened after all of those people, 301,550 people have passed away, full 49, because now... 48, because two of them are actually going to live through it, and that's Caleb and Joshua. They were part of those spies, the original generation. And so when we look at the last chapter, it is in essence sort of like reminiscent piano music is playing. You know, that montage they do to kind of create a little bit of more, you know, a little bit more closeness in relation to your past. Because when we look at it, we see the results of Korah's rebellion. The guy that stood up and in essence said, who died and made you boss to Moses? And the people who went with him, 250 leaders. We saw Moses' horrible mistake, as God reminds us here, and the devastation of the Midianites as they bring their girls in and the men then follow into their, to these relationships with these women who serve other gods and then ultimately find themselves worshiping their gods as, as a result. And so when we take, this, we take this count in the last chapter, what we see, it would really, to be honest, today, it might be a lot like if we took a church picture today and we compared it to a church picture a year ago. And we would look and we would see faces that are a little older, more mature, a little bit more steadfast. We might see a little bit more confidence in the eyes of some we might see, and we can look at some and go, oh yeah, remember how crazy they were a year ago and look at how, who they are today. And we would get excited about looking at some of those people. We would see people that we didn't see a year ago. We'd look and go, remember the first time that the Oompa Loompa came and joined us? Look at now how he's here on a Sunday and how exciting that is. Oh, remember when? So there would be those exciting moments. But there would also be, if we look at the first picture too long, there would be the sadness of looking at a person that we'd look that isn't in the picture this year. And we'd look and go, oh, remember how excited he seemed about the Lord and how sad we would be gripped with the moment and realizing they're not with us now. Now, I'm not talking about the person that just needed to go to another fellowship. Hallelujah, if it's a healthy one. But we're talking about the person now that's just way off the Richter. They're bought, you know, they've bought the plot and they're just so not serving the Lord and you know it and your heart knows it and it hurts when you see it. And here's the point, that when we look at the first picture, there should be a warning. There should be a warning not to do the things they did. Because for some of those people, I know you're like me in this, you saw them slip away. And you came to them and you crawled into their grill and you stood in their face and you said, hey, hey, hey. Come on now, this, get serious about this. What you're doing is so dangerous. And they're like, no, 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 I got it handled. And you're like, no, you don't. Do you believe this lie? I don't. 
And you see those moments where that passion eased up and the spark turned a little bit more into fluff and, and, the, and that drive to really become like Christ became more like a hunger to sit on the couch and just let things happen around them. And you watched it happen. And, for, and no matter what you do, no matter how much you scream until you're blue in the face, you really can't make them make the choice to turn away. And so when I look at that first picture, I, I, I get that, that warning. I get that warning, note to self, I'm not immune from the stupid choices they made. I'm not immune to making myself feel safer than I am, feel stronger than I am, feel number than I should be. I'm not, I'm not inoculated from that. I'm not immune. But if I spend too much time looking at that, that first photo, I'll get really bummed out, won't I? Because all I'll think about are the people that aren't. And I won't think about the people the Lord added. I won't think about the way that the Lord radically moved. I won't think about the people the Lord's brought in. I won't think about the people God saved. In other words, if I look at the picture, first picture too long, I get more than a warning. I just get bummed. And I think it's 300, well, anyways, you get the 303,000, 303,550 people. Of those, now we're at 301,000 and change. We really have relatively, roughly the same amount of people. And the, the reason I say that is, is that of the original count to the one we have, there are less than 2,000 people less than we started with. But they're still all different. And you see the face of this thing change. And, and with that, hear me on this. When God calls us to look at the past, can I just say two simple comments? Take the warnings and leave the regrets. Because if you live in those regrets, you'll never move forward. And let's face it, we've all done stupid things. And if you look back at them long enough, you'll, you'll, be, you'll regret the moment you're living in when you look back at it because you never did anything with it. And how totally cruel would that be to the people around you that God is actually calling to make a difference. And that, and it's painful. So hear me on that. And, and by the way, let me actually give you real numbers. It's 603,550 is the first. Now it's 601,730. That's what we're saying. I want to make sure I have my numbers straight. Now, now in this, now in this chapter, things change. In the last chapter, in essence, what we need to see is the prince over the past. We need to see that God still wants to cover the past with his blood, that he still has forgiveness for the past, that he still has that. And, and understand, for some people, this will become the most important presentation of God or facet of God that, we're, that there is. Because for some, we are like shackled and chained and imprisoned by our past. And if all we do is live in it, you will live in regret. And you'll be convinced you'll never be anything but who you were. And the last chapter reminded us, though, that there are warnings to heed, there is regret to leave. And that's where we get this chapter. And notice, in chapter 27, things have to move. And now in chapter 27, we move now from the, God being the prince over the past, which he will always be, to being the lord of a legacy or the father of a future. That's what we start seeing here. In this chapter, now, we start moving forward. These, and it, really it's two basic stories if you think about it, and they're both a plea for legacy. First of all, you have these gals who plead for a legacy in land, and then you have Moses who pushes for a legacy in leadership. Did you notice that? We have gals here, we have five gals that, can you imagine in the Middle East that come and ask, can we own land? Could you imagine in the Middle East today? 
women trying to, and with all due respect, I'm not telling you I agree with that. I'm just telling you the culture that's today, what you would think would progress in 2,000 years somewhat. Can you imagine them owning land? And here are five gals whose father passed away as part of that first generation, and all he had were daughters. Now, what are these girls going to do if they're really intending to move into the promised land? What are they going to do about a place to live? The great part about it is these girls never say, if we make it in, if we get land, can we have some? There seems to be a great deal of faith with these girls. And can I just say, as we sort of start this, God has a real soft spot for gals. Now, try to find that in another Middle Eastern culture. But if you realize, even those, by the way, for instance, the mother of Ishmael, we know as Hagar, or Hagar, she, by the way, if, you change, if, you, if you're one of those people that does a word study, for instance, on the angel of the Lord, do you know the first time he shows up is for her? Because she has been kicked out of the camp. She's there with her son. She's in the middle of the wilderness, in the desert, dying of thirst, throws her child a bow shot away, and says, just let me die before he does. In other words, please, I don't want to see my son die. Can I die first? And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, by the way, God's got a plan for your life too, woman. Now, he isn't speaking to the boy here. He's speaking to her. Find that in that culture. He says, in that plan, is going to involve that boy having lots of kids, and they're going to be princes. So you need to know. I have a plan for you. And then it says, and I love this. It's one of my favorite parts of the story. It says, then he opened her eyes, and there she was beside a well of water. And I think how utterly almost funny it is. She was about to die of thirst right next to a well of water. But her eyes needed to be opened. Can I just say, there are people outside this building that are dying right now, and they're next to a well of water, and they can't even see it. Well, it was the angel who spoke to Hagar. In 1 Samuel 1, verses 10 through 15, it was a hurting Hannah who had no, no children, but the other gal that was her competitor, so to speak, did, and she really railed her for it. And she cried out. And to make it worse, she was so in bitterness of spirit, she went to the tabernacle, and she went to church, and she's just weeping, pouring forth her heart. She's not saying anything that you can hear, but her lips are moving. And the poor guy at the front, who happens to be the chief priest, that's Eli, you know, Eli, he calls her out from across the room, and he says, how long are you going to be drunk, woman? Could you imagine... It's like just to make your day worse. Your whole life is miserable. You don't want to eat because your life is so miserable. You come in, you pour your complaint. with God, my life is so rough right now. And all of a sudden, the pastor says, why are you drunk? Can you imagine? He's like, oh, my goodness. But the good news is she didn't run out of the room. She just, and by the way, that tells you a little bit about where Ellie is with his family. By the way, his kids' names are Serpent Mouth and Puncher. That should tell you a little bit about something. And so, I mean, who names their kids that? I get the idea here. And so she's like, I'm not drunk as you think. I'm just so bitter in my heart. I have no son. I'm just crying out to the Lord. And he goes, well, you know what? And you can imagine at that point, what would you do if you were the priest? You're like, uh, okay, I'm a dork. Um, may the Lord grant you that then. And she does. It was John 4. If you remember John 4, it was a woman at the well who had had five husbands, and she was a Samaritan. She was low in her culture because she was a woman. I don't, again, I'm not saying I agree with that. But she was low in her culture because she was a woman. She was low in the culture around her because she was a Samaritan. And she was low among all of them. Even among the low, she was low because she had had five husbands. And yet, how many people do you read? Jesus has a one-on-one. He sends his disciples away. And I get why. Because they would have so interfered. 
How many times does Jesus have to get his disciples away because they're going to actually keep him from doing what he wants to? They're the ones that say, send the children away. Send this woman away. She keeps complaining. Send these, this blind guy away. Think about that for a second. It's like the two things the disciples seem to do more than anything else was argue over who would be greatest and keep people from coming to Jesus. Don't you feel comfortable to know that the Lord could use people? Do you think you're disqualified when that's what we chose? But at that woman at the well, Jesus sends them all away so he can be with her, so he can tell her when she says, I know that when Mashiach, Messiah comes, he'll tell us all these things. And he says, I who speak to you am he. How many people in scripture does Jesus just flat out say, I'm the Messiah too? One. And it's a woman. How about that? Running to the aid of a woman who's lost another Mary, who's lost Mary, um, sister of Martha, who's weeping at a tomb because of her brother, or in a house because of her brother. He runs to her. In John 19, at the cross, caring for a woman, he says, as his mother and John the disciple are at his feet, woman, behold your son, John 19, 26. He's going to make sure mom's cared for. In John 20, verse 13, who does Jesus show up to? But a woman who's weeping, another Mary. So there's Martha's Mary, there's Mary Mom, and there's Mary Mag. Mary Magdalene is weeping, and it's there that he reveals himself to her. My point is that God doesn't have a problem calling you out, ladies, to service. Whether that's Sarah or Rebecca or Rahab or Ruth or Abigail or Esther, heroes in their own right in the play, in this divine play that God has written. He has a role for you, and it's not subservient, it's just servient. And he's called you to greatness. And here, Moses being pulled out of first Egyptian culture, remember that's his first 40 years, and then Midianite culture, that's his next 40 years. He's 120 now, and he's got to look at these people, and these gals come up to him, and their names for what it's worth. Mala means diseased. You know, Noah means rest. Hagla means partridge, a little bit nicer in English. Milka means queen. Turtza means favorable. They show up. And here's the key thing that you could miss, because we read past it quickly, is that God makes, actually chases their lineage back to Manasseh. Did you notice that? So what's the big deal about Manasseh? Well, when we did the comparison last week, they were the group that grew the largest. Remember, 63% growth. They went from, in essence, from 32,000 to 52,700. In other words, they grew 20,500 people in that 40 years. And here's the point. Is that when a group is growing that large, that quick, wouldn't that be the easiest group to let someone pass through the cracks? To slip through? I mean, it's just a bunch of gals. Everybody's growing. I mean, Manasseh, you're going to get a big chunk of land anyways. Look at how you guys are growing. What a future you guys have. Why don't we just let them take care of it? But that's not the way God would have it handled. And please hear me. If we wake up one day and every, every space of these pews is full, that does not make you any less important. And if every person in the, in the world claimed Christ, that would not make you any less important. You are not like a, you know, a servant amongst the giant corporation of Christianity. You are a child of the Father of life. And because of that, he calls. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I call my sheep by name. Have you heard him call you by name? Are you still banking on a group reservation? Because clearly in Scripture, God takes every person. So though they've grown the most, these gals come, and Moses, remember, he's sort of judging things from morning to night, and they show up, 
And, and, and with that, they said, look it, my dad was guilty. He died, but he wasn't guilty of that Korah thing where that guy stood up against him. So why should our name of our father be removed? Verse 4, notice that, among the family because he had no sons. So what Moses does, by the way, is something we can all learn from. He does not just take it and go, well, emotionally, I think there's a good choice in it. Logically, this would be a good choice. And then culturally, this would be a good choice, which would be easy things to concede with. And we can do that. When David said he wanted to build the temple for God, it was Nathan who stood up. By the way, that's how he's introduced, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David said, he calls in this prophet named Nathan, which, by the way, means gift. And the guy shows up, and David's like, you know what I was thinking? And he's like, what is it, David? And he's like, well... You know, I live in this big, beautiful house, and God's still camping in a tent outside. I think we should build him a big house. Don't you think it's a great idea? Nathan says, well, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it, slugger. Loose paraphrase. Don't just believe me. 2 Samuel 7. On his way out, God says, yo, yo, Nate. It's a good idea, but it's not going to work. You see, David's a man of blood, and we are not going to build this kingdom with blood. Not at least other men's blood. So you got to go back and you got to tell him you were wrong. Now, any of you at that moment go, oh, I hate my job. You know, I'm a prophet, and the first thing I have to do is actually tell the king that can have me killed. Hey, really sorry, buddy, but uh, it seemed like a good idea, but it isn't going to work. That's the danger of somebody that just means well and is passionate and even seems like they have a real heart for God or may even really have a heart for God, that doesn't mean just because they desire something that it's going to be right. And it can really throw you for a loop if you're in a situation where you see someone, but they loved God and they made this really dumb choice. Now I'm not talking about a sinful choice. It's a dumb choice. And you know, in that, there are things that are just unwise. They don't have to be sinful. They're just unwise. And there are other times where you want to do something and the Lord says, no one prays God. Remember Paul in Acts 16 Wanted to go north into today Istanbul. Wanted to go due west, which today was Ephesus in those days. And in and, and today's Cushata Sea. And God restricted him from doing both. So he couldn't go due north, couldn't go due west. So he wound up going northwest. That's kind of how it worked out. And, and the cool part about it, though, is, is that the, you think, oh, come on, this is Paul now. The guy should know where he is. And it's like somewhere in it, and even that guy doesn't know where he's going at the moment. But what Moses does, he doesn't go, well, you know, ladies, it seems like a really legitimate cause. I think I should just grant you I'm going to fly off the cuff with this. This is human beings we're dealing with. And when we're dealing with human beings, you've got to take it to the Lord. So he does. Now, I'll be honest with you. I really think Moses might have been quite surprised with God's decision on this. In this culture, they would have been like, you know what you need to do? You need to be adopted by somebody else among Menasha, and then you just carry on that family name. But that's not what happened. I mean, notice that God doesn't just say, say yes. Look at God's response, by the way. Verse 7, God says, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. How is that? Moses has to hear. And I'm wondering, that's why I kind of get this idea that Moses might not have thought that was the way it was going to go. He's like, hey, what what these girls speak is what's right. So let's pass some form of law here to make this really clear. If... If the son's not there, well, then give it to the daughter. If there's no daughters, give it to a brother of the, of the guy. If there's no brothers, then give it to a cousin. If there's no cousin, then find the closest relative it goes to him. Because here's the point, is that there is land to be gained, and when that land is to be gained, it's not just for you. That's the key of this. See, the idea of it is, if God had promised Lamar some land, 
And he says, I've got this promise for you, a place that's really full of fruit trees and great things. And, you know, and, you know, and, and, and in all of that, it's like, Lamar's like, ah, oh, that's a great idea. But God's like, but I don't want you to hoard it to yourself. Everything I give you, I want you to take and turn into a legacy. And that's the whole difference between the last chapter and this one. The last chapter we looked back, now we have to start looking forward. And I look and it's like, here's the beautiful thing. Among the land, among the ground that God has given, he wants us to hand it down to those that are our children. That's the idea. Now that can be spiritually, it's to our spiritual children, or whether that's to our own family. And, and I get the idea here that, that without our children really taking a hold of the things that God has given us, nothing really is as sweet. I mean, in the end of it all, if God saved all of London, but my children went awry, it would never taste this sweet. Because they're the children that they're the only ones that bear my name in the sense that I'm going to stand before God, that, no, that they have to spend, pray for these kids. They have to actually go and, and be corrected by their pastor every day. Well, not necessarily corrected every day, but you get the idea. But pray for my wife. She has to crawl into bed with her pastor every day. That would really, you know, pray for that girl. You know? And I mean, the point of all of that is there's a point where it's, you, you can just kind of go, well, we'll dish that off and we'll take care of this and God will take care of the family. Listen, with all due respect, if I walk out this building and go run over by a herd of yak, God can give you another pastor. But my children have only one dad. My wife has only one husband. And that's got to be my first priority. And the good news is that's never been in balance. I mean, I have a remarkably blessed family. I am overwhelmed with God's kindness for my family. And I'm so thankful for the independence, but also the beautiful relationship we get. I love that. But understand, part of it isn't just that I want my kids to go, Dad, you're pretty cool. Because as I get older, that gets harder. I mean, you know, today they're, like, they're using terms like hashtag. And, it's like, and I'm sure by the time I learn what in the world that means, it's going to be out of date. You know, they're going to be like, Dad, don't I? I'm like, I'm, I'm, with my, I'm with my youngest daughter, and we're on a train. And I look, and I'm like, look, someone tagged. Uh, a rubbish bin. And that was really funny to me. Now understand, coming from Chicago, tagging means that you were in a gang and you spray-painted your gang sign on something to say, that's my territory. And that's why it was so funny to me because I thought, wow, like a gang named Fatso took him and said, that's my rubbish bin. Don't mess with me, that's my rubbish bin. And so I'm, and, and I'm like kind of thinking how kind of funny that is, expecting my daughter to go, yeah, dad, ha, ha, ha. And she looked and went, Tagged. Nobody uses that word anymore. Like that. And I'm getting corrected on this. Tagged. Well, what do you mean by tagged? Well, it involves Facebook, which clearly you're not on, Dad. Yeah, you're right. Never been. That's the problem. But if, if, if the day that I die, my children could say, my dad loved his God. He loved his word. He loved his family. Loved us. And he loved his flock. I don't really care about the rest after that. But what else does matters after that? Because if that's really the case, we're all mental. We can make our dumb choices. But in the end of it all, that's what matters, right? Now, I can't make my kids follow Christ, but at least I can not give them ammo. And that's my heart in this. So say, so, you know, I didn't want to follow God, but at least my dad didn't give me any reason to not follow him. 
So in the end of it all, he's going to look and he's going to go, well, here, let's pass this law. And these girls, he has to go back to these girls and go, ladies, y'all getting some land. How nice is that? You get to claim land with everybody else. When that's doled out, get in the queue. You're getting some. And I love that. Because these ladies ultimately are going to say, well, what happens if I marry? And what they're going to say, and this will happen later, and they'll say, well, you know what you should do? Is that you should actually marry within your tribe. But you can keep the family name long enough because God really wants it to endure. God, when God gives you something, he wants it to last. And there's the difference between the Lord and everything else. Is that, you know, the world does promise a temporary happiness. And alcohol has a temporary moment. Sex is a temporary moment. Things have a temporary moment. Money has a temporary moment. But then the bills come. Or power has a temporary moment until people freak out over your power. Or popularity has a, has a, has a moment until people write their blogs. But, but it's a temporary thing. But when the Lord gives you something, it's to endure. And if we're so busy trying to get the quick fix, we'll never get the permanent. And that's the shame in this. Now understand, last chapter we looked back. This chapter we look forward. Next chapter, by the way, we'll start talking about maintaining in the now. And there's this beautiful way of going, well, how do I maintain now into a solid thing? This week we look forward. Because if we can't look forward with this, and here's the point. If you're like, well, I'm going to get saved and all I want to do is go to heaven. Well, then what in the world? Well, what do you think the rest of the time you're going to occupy this earth is going to be about? God is so much better for you than that. So we've got to move forward. And if God's going to move us forward, he's going to have to clear out the old to, clear, to make space for the new. Now, he's already done that in chapter 20 and the beginning of this. The land that he has promised for us is fruitful, but please hear me in this. There is a generation of people, by virtue of the numbers that we counted last week, there is a massive amount of people that the only land they've ever known is the wilderness. It's all they've ever known. There are some people that were older, the ones that have passed away, that all they ever knew prior was slavery. It's like, that's got to die. But he's going to bring us into a land that's great and fruitful, and for that to happen, some things need to change. And that's the rest of our book, or the rest of our chapter. Please hear me in this. There was, in chapter 20, it was actually Aaron. And it was an interesting thing, because what God said is, told Moses, I want you to go up there. There's three of you that are going to go up there. It's you and your older brother. Moses is 120. Aaron is 123. And they got to go walk up a mountain. That tells you something. And Aaron's son, who's got to be very young, because he's the son of Aaron, who's 123. You want to figure out how old Eleazar is? And the three of you are going to walk up there. But two of you are going to go down. And, I, and I'll be honest. I, I don't even know where the emotion would be heavier, with Aaron or with Moses. I think it would be with Moses, but that's just me. Because I, can you imagine, it's like you're walking up and you're like, think of the stories you would tell. And there's that reminiscent piano music playing again, right? It's like, oh man, it's been pretty crazy, hasn't it? The plagues and the pharaoh thing and the floating in the world. You know, can you imagine and the manna and the pillars and it's crazy. And, and you can imagine, it's like, and, and in a moment like that, I, I kind of get that idea that Aaron probably did turn and say, oh, by the way, Moses, can I just tell you what? that um, we didn't just throw gold into the fire and it came out a cow. You know, and you could see Moses going, I know, I've always known. I just want to clear that up. And how rough that would be to walk up with my brother and just to leave him up there and know that, that, that he's not coming down with me. 
And then to have my nephew then to look and say, well, and then while we're up there, the high priest's clothes, I'm not going to pull them off my brother. I'm going to put them on my nephew. I'm like, this is yours now, boy. You're going to just do, do better than your dad. And I'm sure if, if I were young, I would say that. Do better than I did. You know, don't go with the cow. Kill the cow. And down he went. And I think how powerful that is because the Aaron means light bringer. And I like that name. But his son's name, Eliezer, means God the helper. And please hear me in that. If we're going to be led into the place of great fruitfulness, <clears throat> we've got to transition from the light bringer to God the helper. Follow me on this for a second. There is in our history, our testimony, there is in our testimony rich stories of people who were involved in bringing us to Jesus. We were walking in darkness. We were stumbling in darkness. And out of kindness, someone in their love for God first and love for us second brought us light. And they brought us in and said, you know, I really want you to do more than just be a part of a church. So I'd love you to be a part of my church because I know the gospel's being preached. But, but I want you to know Jesus. I mean, I really want you to know him. And so your connection to Christ and to the church in the beginning will be this person, more than likely. This is one of the reasons I have a real problem with the flirt to convert thing, evangelical dating. Um, because you're so messed up with emotion and romance, you don't even know who, what part belongs to who. But even when it's like a bromance, you know, you're there with, hey, bro, how's it going, right? Or with Daniel, it's a fromance or whatever. But, you know, and you're like, hey, we're gonna, I'm going to bring you to Christ and I want you to come and you get involved. But sooner or later, and in the beginning, what happens is the questions are usually going to be asked of your friend, the connection to the church, or the connection to Christ, right? So what happens is, you know, if, you know, if I were bringing somebody, they would be calling me and saying, hey, I've got some questions, what about this now? And this seems weird. And, and I was reading this, and I'm not sure what it means. And, and I get that. And so in the beginning, what happens is this person that's been brought in, they, have this, they connect to the light bearer, whoever their light bearer is. That's the person who will bring them to Christ. But sooner or later, you're gonna, if you're really going to be fruitful, you've got to move and transition from that person to God the Helper. John 14 through 16 is Holy Spirit. Where now all of a sudden, you're getting alone in the Word and you're listening to God speak to you personally. Because man, if the best walk you have is waiting for God to tell me something to tell you, that's one person too many. And God wants an intimate relationship with you. Now, understand, there is a time where I get that connection. And you may always have a friendship and a camaraderie and a fellowship. You should. But ultimately, what happens is it stops being stratted like this, and you walk shoulder to shoulder with the person because we're both relying on the same Holy Spirit to lead us. And that's a really awesome place to be. Does that make sense? And so in chapter 20, Aaron's got to die. Sooner or later, we've got to let, we've got to let him go up that hill, and we've got to let him have his time, and we've got to now let the Holy Spirit, God the Helper, lead us. But that's not the only person that's going to have to change. Because now we have the second one. And I, can I just tell you, this is really beautiful Moses' heart in this. Look at it with me. We can close this up. It says this. First of all, <clears throat> the Lord tells him, verse 12, Go up to Mount Abarim and see the land in which I'm going to give to the children of Israel. 
But when you've seen it, you'll be gathered to your people, just like Aaron was. And then it says, you know, you know why. Verse 14. And then with that, then Moses makes a request. Now, please hear me in this. Because there's a part of us that, if you're anything like me, the first time you read it, if you read it a little carelessly, you might go, well, that just seems mean. Why don't you just let him die? I mean, go ahead, get up on the mountain, and then see what I won't give you. Isn't that kind of what you get out of it? You're like, dang it. I'd rather not see it than see it and not get it. It's like God giving you a catalog and saying, but you can't afford anything in here. So please hear me on this. What Moses has to see, and we'll see that later, is when he gets up to the top and he'll wind up at a mountain called Mount Nebo, is that he's going to see an area that spans over 100 miles. In other words, he will not be able to see it by the vantage point of the mountain. He's going to have to have his spiritual eyes open to see this. And he's got this glimpse that God has shown him something. But that, by the way, is going to be the beginning of it. But then God says, but it isn't just that you're going to see, you just, I'm going to show it to you and you can't have it. Then you're going to be gathered to me. And I really do love two aspects of it. One is that he shows him a land that's something he's craved. And in Deuteronomy, he'll even say, hey, you can do anything, maybe, possibly. And God says, but in the end of it all, you're still getting me. Is that enough? And what if the Lord were to show you a great ministry or the Lord were to show you how you could impact the world or the Lord to show you all kinds of things that could be offered? But then he says, but this, but then I'm, you're still going to get me. Would it be enough? Because if it's not enough, then none of that's going to be enough. That's the one aspect of it. Now, the good news, by the way, and we'll, we'll, is in Matthew chapter 17, Moses will actually end up in the promised land because God's going to have a board meeting up on a mountain, interestingly enough, a mountain, and Moses is going to be there. That's really clear. So it isn't like he doesn't ever get to get there. But the other aspect of it is, let me ask you about you. Has the Lord opened your spiritual eyes? Has he shown you things? Has he shown you a hint of heaven, though you've never been there yourself? And he's like, let me show you all of this. And you had to walk around with this enlightenment now, how God has opened your eyes to all of this, and people think you're a lunatic because of it. And then you get to explain to them, yeah, I haven't been there, but I've seen it. But even with all of that, then God says, but you're going to be gathered to me. Is that enough? So let me ask you, if heaven is a place without disease, the streets are paved with gold. It's a place where all of the people you love could be gathered together. It's a place where it's only happy there's never any misery, kind of like cuckoo, whatever, fun land. Um, and, and there's no, you know, no anger, no, no horrible, no disease, no heartbreak, no tears. But Jesus wasn't there. Would it be heaven? That's the point. That's not what I want. I want you, God. That's what I want. And if I have to live in Detroit with you, I'd rather do that than live in a heaven without you, because it won't be heaven. So please hear me. God says, I'm going to show it to you, but then I want to also, well, I'm going to take you home when that happens. Moses' response, by the way, verse 15, he says, let the Lord, the God, the spirits of, the God of the spirits of all flesh, in other words, you understand the attitude of every heart, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them, go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like a sheep which has no shepherd. 
What I really love about this is Moses says, I would love a legacy. May I have a legacy, please? I love a legacy. These people really do need. And understand, Moses spent the first 40 years, in, in essence, in Pharaoh's home, spent the next 40 years being a shepherd. He knows sheep. And he knows that sheep are, 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 have no attack weapons. Sheep have no brilliant honing devices. It's like they get lost. They walk around a corner of something and they're lost. They, they freak out when they can't see the rest of their sheep. They actually, it's that bad. If you blindfold them, they'll think that there's no one around them. <clears throat> I mean, they have just they have nothing about them that naturally makes them any. They can't even outrun a predator. They can't hide. They have no cloaking devices. It isn't like they said, unless they're like in a cotton factory, it's pretty likely you're going to find them pretty easy. And Moses knows that. And what I really love is, is that Moses doesn't just say, well, they're going to need someone. It's like, but can you give them a shepherd, please? These people need a shepherd. That's what they need. And that just shows you his love for these people. He's like, look, they're going to want somebody to lead them out. They're going to want somebody to lead them in. But they're going to really want that. They're going to need someone that they can follow. Would you raise up somebody? But here's the thing that I think is rather sad and it's easily overlooked. Moses had a couple sons. According to this story, we read in the book of Exodus that Moses, when he got married, he had two sons. And, and interesting, when God's going to pick a replacement for Moses, it's neither of his sons. I don't think that's interesting. But it does make sense. He's like, would you, would you make sure that this is a people that's cared for? Now understand, God takes that very seriously. He takes it so seriously that by the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, he's going to say that the people that have set themselves up as shepherds were actually eating the sheep instead of feeding them. And he says, as a result of that, I'm going to come down and shepherd them because clearly someone's got to. I get the idea. God says, I will be the good shepherd. That's the point. And that's why it was so key that Jesus would say that in John 10. What makes him so good? Because I lay down my life for the sheep. That's the point of this. So listen, the Lord responds. There is a legacy. See, Moses had to lead by the law. And the law can show you the land, but it can't take you in. That's the point. And this is why no other religion works. Every other religion is about you following a set of rules, and hopefully that will get you to where you need to go. That's the problem. Oh, but not this guy. This guy, you've got, you, you got to be led by something greater. Joshua. Joshua is a Hebrew name. Yahushua literally means God is salvation. Now, we translate Yahushua into Greek. We get the name Jesus. And that's where we get the name Jesus. Jesus' name among a Hebrew community was Joshua. One of the 11 most common names, by the way. And it's day. So understand, you have to go from drawn out Moses, the, the one who leads by the law, to a guy whose name is Jesus. Do you find that a bit fitting? I do. And you can try your whole life to try to do it. And listen, here's the difference. If you don't get anything else out of this and you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please hear me. Every other religion is you do this and you do this. Try these rules and jump to the loop-de-loop of death. And you do this and you fast and you mourn and you do this and you take this trip and you, you give this much. And maybe at the end, all of these things that you abide in, maybe it will be enough to get you over. But that's not the way of the Word of God. 
Scripture tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sin. God so loved us, He sent Jesus to die for us on the cross so that all of our sin could be paid for. Now, we didn't do anything to deserve that. That's called grace. There's the difference. God did it because He loves us. And He took your filth and my filth, nailed it to the cross so that all of our guilt could be paid for before we did anything. When we were still His enemies, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, He did this. In other words, He did it when we did nothing worth it. Then, out of His infinite love for us, raised Jesus from the dead, showing that it had been properly paid, and then puts the choice in our lap. God did the performing. And then gives us the choice. There's the difference. God says, I'm going to invite you into the promised land. I will lead you in. I will take you in. You don't have to earn it. You won't have to perform it. All you have to do is trust me. Everything else is going to work its way out. All I'm looking for is your trust, your love. Everything else is going to fall into place if you give me those. And that's the point. So this Joshua, notice it tells us, by the way, he's a man in whom is the Spirit. Where once I had to be led by the law, and by the way, Galatians tells us the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. It gets you to the point, but it can't get you in. On the other side of it, there's this person who's led by the Spirit. And that Spirit's going to lead him to the cross. Now in Joshua's case, he's going to lead us into the land. He sent him before Eleazar. They inaugurated him, and they gave some of your authority, and he did. So, by the time we're done with this, Moses has then, from this point on till the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he's still going to be alive, but his successor is standing in front of him. Now listen, please hear me in this, and I'm almost done, so please stay with me. The world is desperate for proper shepherds, and the church more so. Moses didn't say, give me a guy that's brilliant in Scripture. Give me a guy that performs perfectly and he's great in his discipline. Give me a guy that's super talented or excellent in his speech. Give me a great entertainer. Give me a guy that's really good looking so that they'll follow him just because he looks good. Give me a guy that's really strong so that the enemies will quake when the guy walks by. didn't say any of those things. What he said was, can you give him a shepherd? Listen, I was up in Scotland a while back, and we went into a covenanter's church. Have you ever heard of those? There was a time when the king of Scotland wanted to take sovereignty of the churches and claim it, but he was a heathen. And there were churches that refused to be led by a guy that was not following Christ. So they became outlaws, renegade churches. And we went to this church, and it was about as small as a row of these pews. And from that, it had seven doors including one right behind the pulpit. And the idea of it is that if the, the army would come in, they would be able to flee in every direction. You know, and I can, the idea of like, wow, the pastor had his own door to flee out. And people actually froze to death in icy uh, valleys just to study the Word of God. Could you imagine that kind of devotion? We'd be upset because the pew is hard. But I remember when I went to this one, my heart broke because on the side of the wall and the inside was a plaque and it had been there since the 1100s. And it had the list of these men's names who were the the residing pastor or reverend at the time. And the first few, it was like made my heart sing. It was like it gave their name, the years, 
that they um, had served at the church, and then some statement to the right of it. And I remember one specifically said, wept much in prayer. Another one that said, you know, basically loved his family and his flock. I mean, and there were all of these beautiful things that I would love to said about me. And there was, and every one of them was this beautiful characteristic. And then interestingly enough, there was this straight line because one of them had been deposed for simony. And what that means is that the religious service that he was supposed to be offering for free, he was charging and getting money for. So he got fired. The ironic thing was what happened to every name after that. There was still a list of names. There was still the years that they had served. But everything after that was graduated at age 12 with a doctorate in divinity. Had memorized this and was this. And, you know, it was all of these qualifications. But before that point, it was all about their character. And I wonder why the church could be in such a dangerous place. We want an archbishop that's smart. Hey, it's, you might not want a dumb one, but how about character? I mean, where, what I want is a person that's a shepherd. When we left the Shoreline Calvary Chapel in Morro Bay, we had several pastors on staff. And all, by the way, pastor only means shepherd. You're aware of that, right? It doesn't mean superhero or anything like that, or everyone bows down and gives him candy. What it means is, hot sauce is okay, but what it means is, is that he's supposed to be a shepherd. He's supposed to love his flock. And of the men that we had before us, first thing is, is that we started getting all these phone calls and letters from people that are like, oh, I heard you're leaving, and I really want to, you know, we could all take over your church. I'm like, I don't even know who you are, bozo. And the last thing I want is to hand people that I love over to you. I don't care how good you are. And of course, the, the CVs look really good. I, you know, I've, t- I've, I've pastored six churches. And is there a part of you that goes, oh, well, then why didn't you stay at any of those? But, but you know, you get this thing. And then it was like, but then I looked at the guys, and one of the guys, more than any of the other, really had a shepherd's heart for this flock. And the other guys were good, they were gifted. But one guy, I'm like, that's the shepherd. And he's very different from me. Very different from me. That wasn't the point. I wasn't trying to replicate myself. What I was trying to do was I wanted to make sure that the church was going to be properly cared for by a shepherd. Does that make sense? No, we can nod with that in theory, idealistically. And in the same way, we can do that in regards to this. But what about you and the friends God's given you? Do you realize they need a shepherd too? And they need somebody that's going to love them, that's going to feed them the Word of God, that's going to keep them safe, that's going to invest in them and want to see them healthy. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether you're a guy or a girl here. Girls need shepherdesses. You're aware of that, right? Do you really want me to be meeting with a girl all the time? I don't want it. With all due respect, ladies, I want gals that I trust to be able to do that with you so you can develop. Because I cannot properly show you how to be a mature woman in Christ. Because if I could, that would be weird. <laughs> to be honest. Well, then next year, you get it. As we go to prayer, the Lord would like to leave every one of you a legacy. I'd like to give you a legacy. And the legacy isn't you're going to come here, fill some space until you die, and then maybe you'll fill a plot somewhere on a lovely green knoll. But rather, the Lord would like to give you a legacy that when hundreds of years pass, if the Lord still tarries, though that's hard to believe, that the world will still be affected because of what, you, because of what he did through you here. You'll never see on this side of heaven the impact to its degree. 
But what happens when you stand before the Lord and He shows you? The world has been changed because you said yes to Jesus. The world. And that's what He has for you. I don't care if you're a guy or a girl, that's what He has for you. But for that to happen, we need to be spiritually led. We need to be in His Word. And we're going to start seeing that next week about maintaining in the, in the now. But we also need to leave behind the past. Take with it its lessons. Leave the regrets behind. And know that the reason God's leading us forward is to give us a legacy. So that we could be further used to change the world. How cool is that? He doesn't have to do that, but he does anyway. Because he's in the business of changing lives. So why not use you? You're his. Now, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, would you like to today? Why not? You realize today you could say yes. Now, look at I'm not asking you to do. Remember, here's the difference. It's not about you do this and this and this and this and this, and then maybe it'll be enough. God did this and this and this and this. He lived a spotless life, came to earth, was tempted in every way, yet refused temptation, was tortured in every way in essence, and then refused to fight back, took the price, paid the price on the cross, died a horrible, rotten criminal's death, and then rose from the dead. That's what he did. So he did and did and did and did and did. And then he says, he hands it in you and says, will you accept that gift, please? And that's the choice you have to make. If you say yes today, God is willing to wash you clean of all your sins. God is willing to adopt you as his own and call you his own. And he's willing to cover you with his love. That's the choice you need to make. That's, I just want you to know, that's what you would say yes or no to. He also adopts you and brings you into a really weird family. <laughs> oh, I am. But that's the choice you've got to make. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you've shown us through Zelophehad, well, actually, Zelophehad and through his daughters, that you really care for the woman as much as the man. That it isn't about a man being more important. It's actually just about us all filling the roles you've given us. And you have specific roles for each of us. We're aware of that. And I, maybe we're not, but would you show that today? Would you show us, Lord, that clearly you've bespoke a ministry for each of us? That there is one with my shape and my name on it that nobody else can fill that way. Among that ministries that you've given me includes a wife and children. It includes a beautiful ministry to my wife and children and a beautiful ministry to this flock, to the rest of the flock. And I thank you for that. I thank you every day. You know this, Lord, for I get to wake up and serve you another day and I get to be part of this wonderful family, both my nuclear family and this beautiful church family. I thank you for the privilege of children that call me dad, wife that calls me honey, I thank you for the privilege of people who call me pastor. You know what a gift that is. And I pray, Lord, for those who need to transition today, who they've been kind of making a Jesus and, whatever that and is, begin that transition, Lord, where they would embrace you and let that relationship be you and them. 
that they could overflow from that and turn out to be a light giver to others. I pray, Lord, for those right now that are still hungering and craving for the things of the world that are so temporary, but as a result of that are too full to have those things that are permanent that you offer. Clearly, you have to empty our hands before you fill them. May we not fight you for what you remove, but rather trust you for what you'll replace. I pray today that you would give us that trust that is necessary to invest in you to say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you where you lead me. Knowing that where you lead me will create a legacy. I also pray, Lord, if there be anyone in this room that has yet to say yes to you. And today, they recognize that what they're actually receiving is your gift. Lord, for all the the reasons they may want to fight that, show them the folly of that, that today they would say yes and surrender properly. So Lord, I commit right now this moment in your Holy Spirit to work on them and give them the courage to respond. So in this room right now, nobody has to know where you've been to know you need a Savior like the rest of us. And I don't know which of you have truly said yes or not. You can fool me. Praise God, it's not about me saying yes or no about you. It's about you saying yes or no to Jesus. And I'm going to pray a prayer and ask you to listen. And if you get it, if you recognize in the end of it all that that prayer resonates with your heart's cry and you're like, you know what? Yeah, I need to do that. Then I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen at the end. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer. Let those words be mine. So be it in my life. So listen, and then decide. Here's the prayer. God in heaven, you and I both know I'm not perfect. But according to your scriptures, you made the first move. You did the work. You chose to take all of my punishment and place it upon yourself. You chose, out of love, to offer yourself in my place. You chose in love to take my shame, my guilt, and put it upon yourself. You chose to die for me. And you chose out of love to let that be the beginning of the story, not the end. And you rose from the dead just like Scripture promised. And you offer me a new life. One pure in your forgiveness. One free in your love and care. And one willing to let you lead where I would have led before. If you really want to offer me that, I want to say yes. Say yes to your gift, declaring Jesus you as my Savior by paying for my sins, my ransom by dying on the cross, and my Lord by raising again. So have me. 
I don't know what the future holds, but I know this. Handing my life to you is the best thing I'll ever do. So here I am, I'm yours. Adopt me. Cleanse me. Make me yours. Jesus, in your name, if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.